You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Ari Newman, who's a co-founder and managing director at Massive Capital Partners. In the past 15 years, he's been on the operating side as a two-time founder, and he's been a VC since 2012, mentor, advisor, and board member. Some of this includes Techstars, partner on the venture team, now over $500 million in assets under management. And he's an occasional blogger at arinewman.com. On today's show, we talk about what's the difference from working with a company when you are an advisor versus an angel investor in the company? What was it like building web applications during the first dot-com era? Product versus sales. What's it like being the unpopular person in any role in your company? And much more. All right, let's begin the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Ari, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I got to thank Jack Keller, who made this introduction. He spoke Many great things about you. And then I, when I, after talking to you, I kind of found out everyone's age is pretty interesting. Ari, for our audience out there, can you give us a little background of your career up until this point? Yeah, absolutely, Sean. And uh, great to be here. So I spent the first 15 years as a founder and operator, co-founded my first company just on 18 months out of college during the dot-com era in the Valley. I then went on and had several other operating roles including running a global CDN and running product and support for an enterprise storage company. Before I started Filterbox, which was in the first ever Techstars class here in Boulder in 2007, I exited Filterbox in 2010 and stayed with the acquirer through 2012. And that's when my career transition to venture really started. Now, I got a lot of questions. And for the name of the show, the Silicon Valley podcast, everyone has some connection with Silicon Valley. and most people come here, they never leave. Well, I guess until the pandemic, now everyone seems to be leaving. But actually, a lot of your career has been outside of Silicon Valley. Can you tell us why? I mean, right now you're in Boulder, Colorado. I just found out you were in Lisboa, and I might have pronounced that incorrectly in Portugal. I apologize to my wife already, who's going to hear this and correct me later. She lived there a year, and she says my pronunciation is just awful. But why, why not live in Silicon Valley? Why all these other locations? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question. So I'm actually a third generation San Franciscan, which is something I'm proud of. And I grew up in the Bay Area. And after graduating from the University of Colorado, I moved back to the Bay and just on that company that was, uh, we built during the dot-com era was in the Valley. I've lived all over the Bay Area from San Francisco down to Cupertino. I love the West Coast. I had a crazy five-year run during the dot-com era. And we, my wife and I had just gotten married. We wanted to find a place that was going to be great to raise kids that, quite frankly, had a little bit more balance for us. Because in those crazy five years, I lived in the car, r- racing up and down 101 and 280. My office was down by the San Jose airport uh, for a while. Uh, we had an office on California Avenue. I never had the easy commute going from one neighborhood to another neighborhood in San Francisco. And we were always running around, always in the car, always looking for parking. Everything was expensive. 
the dot-com crash happened. It felt like it was like scorched earth and we had just gotten married and we were going to start a family. And I had loved my time in Colorado. And so Boulder was an easy choice as something to try. And we had sort of said to each other, like, let's go give this a try. And if it doesn't work and we're not happy in this small town in the mountains, we'll move back to SF. And look at us now. It's almost 20 years later. Wow. Do you think maybe there was any opportunities that were missed by moving? Do you think that maybe more occurred because of the move? Tell, tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, if I'm being honest, I, I know for sure that I probably gave up some huge economic opportunities by leaving. I had a great network and had done some interesting things. And some of the folks that I used to work with went on to build amazing companies that I potentially could have been involved with or done my own thing. I just, at the time, hyperscaling tech companies in Colorado was not nearly as easy and accessible as it was in the Bay Area. So for sure, I feel like I made some compromises for work-life balance, quality of life, et cetera, by leaving. But I don't, I don't regret it. And I've had a great run here. I'm super proud of the community that we've built in Colorado. Everyone knows that money can't buy happiness anyway. You'd be surprised the number of people I've had on this show that pretty much say the same thing. And they also, a lot of them, and this was even last week, talked about the mental wellness of startup founders and just how, I mean, this is just grind factory that tears people apart. And I don't think a lot of people in the world actually realize the emotional and physical effort that are these people put in when they're building a company. But let's go back even earlier than you know the exit to Colorado. Let's go back to the very, very beginning of your career. Now, and please tell us you know the story in as much detail and as much energy as possible. But you had a two-year internship. Most people, you know, have a six-week internship, maybe eight, but two years, that seems a little extreme. Why was it two years? That, uh, that is a great question. You must have dug deep in my background there. Gosh, I, let's let, yeah, you want to go all the way back? Let's go all the way back. So I grew up in the Bay Area and I like my, I'm, I'm a Virgo. So I like details and I grew up like, like totally nerding out on aircraft. I used to build like, you know, plastic model aircraft. I used to fly remote control planes. I, I was the kid that like took my mom's perfectly good toaster apart just to see what it looked like on the inside. And I had this benefit of being in the Bay Area, which is like the first like home computer hobby store showed up down in the valley where the Commodore 64 came out and the first Apple computer. And so I was like dragging my dad down to go check these things out. And I was just into computers and new technology from a super young age. This stuff always fascinated, fascinated me. And the best way to get close to it then was to be around companies. I was too young to get a real job. So when I was in high school, I actually interned for uh, a company down in the South Bay that was making hardware video cards and, and sound cards. I ended up with a split job where part of it was I was in the QA lab trying to break the sound cards and the video cards running test applications. And then the other half of my day, I was in the executive office and I built a investor relations database in HyperCard on a Mac. And the funny thing now is you fast forward like 20, you know, 20 plus years later in my career, still like a sort of a dual personality. I'm semi-technical and nerdy, but I'm focused on the business side as well. So fast forward just a little bit. I'm in college. I'm a marketing major at the University of Colorado. I become like a self-taught 
Linux admin because I converted an old Mac uh, that had a power PC processor to run uh, an early version of Linux on it and start hacking around and figuring that out. And I got introduced to the founder of this founder that was starting a company here called Inroads Interactive. They needed some help and I wanted experience and I needed it for the resume builder, but I also wanted something to do. And I didn't want to go back to the Bay Area during the summers in college. I wanted to hang out in Boulder and mountain bike. So I found this five-person company. The office is down here on Pearl. I did everything from go to the post office to learn how to be a certified bulk mail shipper to making phone calls to book interviews and photo shoots for exotic pets. (laughs) Because the product was a multimedia CD-ROM. We used to call them edutainment CD-ROMs that was like an interactive database for dogs, cats, and exotic pets. I actually... Total aside, but I actually remember a day I told the CEO, you know, we should take this thing online. And he looked at me like I was insane. <laughs> so it was, it was early days. And even shipping a CD to people was, was like new tech back then. But it was a five-person company. And I got to wear all these different hats and I got to learn. And I felt like I was part of something. And it was the first time ever for me. And I got a, like a real dose of the startup life. And I was a 20, early 20-something kid living in Boulder. I basically worked at a startup and rode my mountain bike. It was a good life. So the reason it was a two-year gig was I worked with them all summer, one year. And then I was looking at what I was going to do for the next summer. And the company had grown. They now had more contracts, more titles. And I came back to work for them for a second summer. That experience, how did that shape the rest of your career? And would you recommend people actually doing a prolonged internship like that? Or I mean, you'll talk to people now and they want to get paid the day they graduate. They want to get paid during summer inter. They just want if they don't they some of the people I've come across, if they're not getting paid, they just pass on it. I mean, the world was a you know, the world was a different place back then. Unpaid unpaid internships were more common. Now uh, I think paid internships are the standard and for good reason. People's time is valuable and we live in an expensive world. I, you know, for me, that experience was invaluable. And I was fortunate enough to be able to to hang out here during the summer and and do that. Absolutely. If you think you're interested in the startup world or you're in high school or college and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life, like getting a taste of what it's like inside of a small company is amazing. You know, if you go to work for a giant company and you sit at your desk and you're given a couple of tasks, your your lens, your view of what's going on across that whole company operationally is probably pretty small. The beauty of being inside of a startup is you get get to see the good and the bad, the frenetic pace. Sometimes the lack of clarity, sometimes the conflict, and and just the fact that it's all hands on deck and nobody gets to say that this is not in my job description. You just do what you have to do to help the company move forward. And also, I think the camaraderie, learning what it learning what it feels like to be part of a high functioning team of people that trust each other at a at a young and early part of your career is amazing. That that's interesting. The no matter what the problem is, everyone's all hands on board. Everyone's getting everything done the trust, the team. Was it at that moment when you went, the startup lifestyle is the lifestyle I'm going to pursue moving forward? Or do you start having second thoughts? No, I kind of knew from that moment on that, that that's what I wanted to do. Like my, my brain, I'm not like diagnosed with ADD, but I sort of feel like I, my brain is wired that way because I'm addicted to ideas. I'm always interested in learning the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I'm, I'm always absorbing all of that. And so the the opportunity for me at that age to like learn how to wire wire a network for the office one day, and then figuring out how the U.S. 
postal mail system works for bulk, bulk mail. And by taking a four-hour class, I can save our company thousands of dollars in customer acquisition costs. And then the next day, understanding what it looks like to be talent manager and do bookings for photo shoots. Like I got all of these totally diverse experiences and none of this stuff was in a job description. It was all like, what do we need to do today? Let's go get it done. You know, stick the intern on it. <laughs> so it was awesome. I, and, but, but it was more the environment and the speed of execution and the fact that we were building something from nothing that I got addicted to. Like we, yeah. this was, this was an idea. Hey, can we do this? Maybe, I don't know. Let's go find a customer and build the product. Like that was so cool. And I'm jealous. I, I, I'm honestly jealous of that experience. But after that internship, you moved right into building web applications during the first dot com era. What was that well, like? Well, I actually, so I actually, I got a job uh, at a publicly traded company in the Valley. So I left Colorado, moved back to the Bay Area. The company was called World Talk. And I worked there for 18 months. And we sort of hit a brick wall in terms of scaling sales for this product. And we had pitched to the management team the idea of running it as a service, right? And ASP was called back then. The board said no. So I resigned to my boss, who then subsequently resigned to the CEO. And he and I and a couple of other folks formed this company just on. And we didn't realize it at the time, but I think what we ultimately were building was like a multi-layered microservices platform for the future cloud that never you know, had yet to be defined. So we built a identity layer, a billing layer, authentication, and we were like, we we're going to build applications on top of it. And so the first application that we built was a, a file sharing app called... And so the company was called Just On, and we built, we replicated the UI from Windows, the Windows File Explorer in JavaScript in 1999. So it was immediately familiar to people that barely understood computers and certainly didn't understand the internet. It just looked like an extension file tree, but it was ha- happening in the cloud. So that was that was 18 months after I got out of college. I had you know my first my first real job. Resigned to my boss, took a, took a leap, started this company. We had no clue what we were doing, but it was an amazing experience. And what ended up happening to that company? In, 90, in 98, 99, the internet is, is new. Websites are starting to pop up. There's some e-commerce websites that are popping up. There's all sorts of stuff happening. But you know, everything was hard. Like Everything was really freaking hard back then. There was no blueprint for how to build a web scale application. There were no cloud hosting providers, really. We were creating our own versions of the cloud by building out our own infrastructure. I, when I started, like we were a five-person team. And because I understood Linux a little bit, and by sort of default, based on the skill sets of the rest of the team, I was the one that owned production. I owned the infrastructure. I, ended, I was the one that ended up in the data center. And so I had to figure out on the fly with no training, how to build a web scale platform. Literally remember staring at my my rack of servers and blinking lights one day going, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> like I'm completely untrained. I don't even know what half of these things do. I'm just trying to figure it out day by day. And I'm like looking around up and down the aisles of this data center and there's nobody there to help me. I can't ask anyone any questions. I'm in this building by myself. And I like I couldn't possibly have been like in over my head anymore. <laughs> maybe maybe if I was like you know found like woke up and found myself like pi- piloting a, a fighter jet with no training or something. But I felt pretty pretty out of my depth. Every time I needed a piece of equipment or another server, I had to go print a purchase order. 
find a value-added reseller, drive there, give them the purchase order, get the piece of equipment, drive it to the data center, check it into inventory. Like There were so many steps involved in just the simplest task back then. And so every single component that we needed to buy and add and build was on me to do from, you know, from, from beginning to end. There was no like in order to get infrastructure up and running back then, it wasn't as easy as it is now, which is you just, you know, click on upgrading your Amazon instance from medium to large, or you try opening up a new droplet at DigitalOcean uh, to scale, or you sign up for Cloudflare to handle all of your CDN distribution and security needs. Every element of service you had to buy hardware for, configure, buy software for, and deploy in a scalable way by yourself. So that's why it was so hard. You know, when you've got a skeleton team running on a couple hundred K of seed funding, buying hardware, not just paying salaries or just paying, you know, for SaaS services, it was complicated. And I had no clue what I was doing. So I had to get extremely creative. We, you know, if we had time, I could sit here for hours and tell you about all the innovation that came out of having no money and not knowing what I was doing. Basically, the short version of that is because I was clueless and I was making tons of mistakes according to you know enterprise infrastructure architecture guidelines, I actually was able to build a super scalable web application almost out of ignorance. <laughs> so, so, so with that then, would you say a lot of innovation for startups come out of maybe lack of resources? Absolutely. I think, I think, being, I think being resource constrained and under time pressure forces out-of-the-box thinking. It forces creative ways of looking at problems. I mean, one, like one quick example is we, needed, we were running an Oracle database, but I didn't have money to actual, actually run an Oracle database according to the standards that Oracle themselves said were required you know, to qualify for support. So I just had to get creative. And I used a NetApp filer and I carved off a partition and I used NetApp's snapshot service as my backup solution. And I set up a separate private, you know, 10 nets for security. Like I just hacked my way through things that were the only way of solving these problems that I could come up with. And if I had had a $5 million seed round, I probably would have spent almost all of it putting out all this beautiful, perfect infrastructure that would have made no difference to whether the market liked the product or not. So in this hacking everything together, putting things together, duct taping this and that, were there any times where maybe, you know, you were the unpopular guy? In this whole mess, maybe you know, product or sales, where people go, "Oh, there's Ari again. I don't want to talk to this guy. I don't want to hear what he's going to say." You know, there's definitely more than one. (laughs) You know, probably the one that taught me the biggest lesson about being the unpopular guy was when I steered pretty far out of my lane in a board meeting, and this was a bit later, a little, a couple years later after just on. I was at another company. Uh, I'll leave the name of the company out, out of it to protect the, uh, to protect the guilty here. But uh, things were not going well for us. We had a super complicated product and we were having a tough time with revenue recognition. At the same time, we were trying to scale really quickly and grow top line revenue. I owned support and ultimately became the head of product as well. And there was one thing that was a fundamental truth, which is any one of our, you know, sort of Fortune 10, Fortune 50 level accounts, of which we had several, before they were to spend, you know, six to seven figures on our software, they were going to put us in the lab. They were going to run us through trials. They were going to open up an average of like seven to 12 support tickets that we were going to have to clear before they'd ever move forward with a deal. And so we ended up in a situation where I was already pretty frustrated 
the management team wasn't really hearing the feedback about where we were with product quality. And the head of, the head of sales was putting out some really outrageous numbers in terms of what we were going to hit. And I'm looking at my support queue and the fact that some of these names aren't even known to me. And just based on data and history, like I knew we had a problem. So instead of handling it like I should have, which is to air my grievances privately and amongst the leadership team, in a pretty crappy passive-aggressive move, I pointed this out in the boardroom with our investors. Maybe it was my like cry for help because I was not getting any help or support from within the company. But obviously, that landed like a turd. Uh, everyone scowled at me. I got yelled at for a couple of days afterwards uh, and really ruffled a lot of feathers. Unfortunately, I was right. And then we never closed those deals. And my signals intelligence was correct. But I certainly learned a big lesson about how to handle delicate things from a political standpoint. And also like, whose side am I actually on here if you work for the company? One of the things I learned through that whole experience is that when you, when you don't have confidence in a leadership team or you don't have confidence in a product and you've done everything that you can do, being negative or concerned or not bringing the right positive energy to the company is just ineffective. And sometimes you have to vote or, or walk or sorry, vote or talk with your feet. So I ultimately resigned. Wow. Was there any time, I mean, that's pretty incredible that that instance there, was there any time maybe then before or after that you were maybe worried and you thought that, you know, your job was on the line for some reason? Yeah, that's happened too. <laughs> Actually, good question. You know, I, I think when you're push, I think when you're pushing and doing things that haven't been done before, or you're moving quickly and you're willing to break things along the way, there's always some risk of that. I think it's you know sort of the, the sign of entrepreneur that just beats to their own drum. But there was one instance earlier in my career. So back in the in the just on file sharing days. So we we started the company. We scaled it really quickly. It was a hyperscale business. You know, back then we went from concept to five million monthly unique visitors in less than a year. We sold the business to Novell. We spun out this other joint venture shortly after the Novell acquisition. So I'm now a Novell employee. Eric Schmidt is running Novell at the time. We, we were migrating our production infrastructure over from copper, Ethernet to fiber. And we were moving to new network gear that was going to give us a full fi fiber backbone. And as a test, we turned on what was called then a full mesh where you're running like synchronous dual fiber connections up to the internet, which basically doubled our, our, upstream, our outbound bandwidth. We're all sitting there in the data center, high-fiving each other because we're pushing a gig and a half of outbound traffic to the internet, which back then was a lot. And we let it run for like a week just to see what would happen so that we could learn, see how much our you know, capacity, our infrastructure could actually handle. And we were kind of amazed. And finally, we were like, okay, that's crazy. Let's turn off one of the channels and just run single channel. Well, I totally, in the moment, um, probably because I was delirious, you know, I shouldn't make excuses, but I forgot that our, we had, you know, back then you had bandwidth contracts. You have a committed amount and an overage amount. And the more you go over, the more you pay. So, our little fun experiment of running uh, full mesh outbound resulted in us getting an extra quarter million dollar in bandwidth bills. And everybody at the company was so terrified and pissed that basically they handed me the invoice and they're like, you have to go explain this to Eric because ultimately the buck stops with him. So I remember the day I had to walk up to his office and explain to him how I just cost Novell an extra quarter million dollars. And I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was either going to walk out unemployed or not. 
And thankfully, I did not walk out unemployed. And to Eric's credit, he's always been an incredibly curious mind. So the question was not, how did you do this, you idiot? It was, how did you do this? You need to show me. Were there any results from that? Maybe because of this knowledge, this wisdom, it it pivoted or steered or what were the outcomes? One outcome was that we took Eric for a data center tour and he got to see our infrastructure and some of the earliest Google infrastructure then, because in the same data center, like one of Google's earliest nodes of you know, CPUs sitting on pizza boxes and baker's <laughs> racks were running. And one of the other things that, that, that eventually came up was that we ultimately shut down the file sharing service, not as a result of this bandwidth bill, but through this analysis exercise of the cost of infrastructure and the revenue we were generating. Ironically, had, had we stuck that out, we today would be running something like a Dropbox or a box.com potentially. Who knows? The cost of infrastructure and bandwidth was extremely high back then. So the other thing is that we had, we were in the middle of spinning out a company called Valera, which was a, uh, a global CDN. So lots of, lots of learning and ultimately a renegotiation of our bandwidth contract with our hosting provider. I got to also ask, I mean, all these careers that you have, jobs, it seemed to be in like a one or two year stint. They seem very short. Uh, was this by design? What was the cause of these short careers? And did, were there any drawbacks? Did it accelerate what you're doing? What were your thoughts of doing just these work, move on, work, move on, work, move on job stints? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting insight. And I, I presume that you are reading that from like looking, looking at my LinkedIn profile. And so, so maybe some of what you don't see is what goes on underneath the covers. But it's really by coincidence, not by design. It was a coincidence that 18 months after starting my first job out of college, we started just on. Couldn't control that. And it was a coincidence that we got acquired by Novell. And I couldn't control that. And then after we were running Valera, the dot-com crash happened. And I chose to leave that company rather than staying, you know, staying there at that point. When I got to when I got to Colorado, I worked for a company for a couple of years. And then got the idea to start Filterbox. It was also a coincidence that Filterbox got acquired after two years. And then I spent two more years at the acquirer. So that was really a four-year cycle. As I transitioned into my venture career, I was at Techstars from 2012 to 2018. So that was six years, not two. So I don't have a thing around two years. Sometimes uh, the, entre- the entrepreneurial world, if you, unless you're building a great company, it becomes huge and it takes a a decade to get there. Sometimes these acquisitions come earlier or companies companies transition or pivot, but totally coincidence based on what I've done, not by design. And, and that longest span that you had, six years at mm-hmm. Techstars, advisor, mentor, investor, what was kind of your role there? And then I also really want to ask from companies you've invested in, what's the difference between working with them as an advisor versus working with them as an investor? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, at, tech, at Techstars, I started out as like sort of a, a official and unofficial, but I had essentially a dual role. I was the first network catalyst at Techstars. Having been a founder, an operator with an exit and being here in Boulder, I was sort of the perfect person to help bring all of the network nodes together. That was like a day job where I was at the same time on the side helping David Cohen and the and the team there deploy some capital out of the then vintage early stage venture fund. And that fund was at a size and at a stage where it didn't make sense for me to be full-time. And I actually remember David saying, I don't have a job for you over here on the venture side, but I have this other job for you. And 
that, that was that was how it all began. But then ultimately, I became a partner on the venture team, and that was where the bulk of my time was spent. I met with thousands of TechStars companies. I got to spend time with tons of founders, and uh, we deployed capital into a select number of them. What about that? You know, working with a company, the difference between being an investor and putting money in versus an advisor. Mm-hmm. How how does that role differ? How's that interaction between the two? In a perfect world or sort of an idyllic scenario, I would say not, not too much. I have, a, I have a belief that generally what's best for the company is, is what's best for me as an investor. Right? I, I want to see a company, a company thrive holistically. And I know that good things will happen with my invested capital. When you start to prioritize your downside risk or your upside as an investor in front of What's best for the company as a whole? You start so like you know either weird things happen or bad things can happen, but it just changes how aligned you are with the business. Of course, there's certain scenarios. There's always exceptions. There's things that are that are not black and white. But in general, I approach being an early stage investor similar to being a mentor or an advisor, which is how do I help the company and how do I help the founders figure out how to scale the business. One thing I would say is that it's important to know what you're doing there. Sometimes your role as a mentor or an advisor is to help the, the CEO. And sometimes helping the CEO may mean advising or pointing out to the CEO certain things that they might be missing that maybe could have impact on other employees or product direction. It may not even be the best thing for the company, right? But if you're there to advise the company holistically or you're on the board, obviously your charter is to, to help the company in the aggregate. You've worked with so many companies over the years, hundreds, thousands. I'm not even sure the number. A lot of our listeners, they're entrepreneurs. They're out there raising capital. Do you have any suggestions, any wisdom for them? And if you want to say stories, if you want to say anecdotes, anything, go for it. Any wisdom that you can pass on to them about raising capital? I mean, how much time do we have? Is this like a six-hour podcast or... Yeah, we, we can do four or five segments. It's okay. In fact, if it's long I mean, enough, we could always sell it to Netflix as a series. There has been so much ink spilled on this topic. There's, you know, people opining hourly on Twitter about all of this. But I mean, th- th- look, there's there's a lot there's a lot happening really quickly in the market right now. We're we're living in a COVID's been an extremely interesting dynamic in venture, reducing people's travel and increasing your sort of static connectivity. I would say the fact that we're sitting behind desks. And connected all of the time means the speed at which things are happening is only increasing. And there's been so much uh, capital and dry powder in the market that the deals, the deal sizes, valuations, rounds, follow-on rounds, just the, the speed and size is continuing to grow. Maybe a couple of quick, a, a couple of quick points around all that. For a founder, it's important to, to sort of see the forest between the tre- you know the forest of the trees when you're fundraising. I see a lot of founders. Go for the biggest round they can, the most money at the highest valuation. Hopefully, they're not doing the napkin math and thinking this is what I'm worth personally or this is what my company is worth, because that math is really just a function of the the, the venture market dynamics and what is sort of fair for ownership and dilution when you're raising capital. So just because some investor had enough conviction to write you a $20 million check at a 50 post does not mean your company that has no product in market is really worth $50 million yet. And so I think staying clear about that is important. And the other thing to remember is that you're only creating a higher hurdle for the company in terms of the next round. Whatever round you're currently closing or contemplating is really setting the table for the next round that's coming up. You know, my advice is always look ahead and plan ahead and realize that the 
you know, frothy round you close now might be really, really hard to live up to, especially if we have a, mark, a, a turn in the market cycle uh, when you go out to raise your next one. Investors don't want to see a company that has a $20 million post-money valuation raise the next round at a 25 pre. They want to see a 2 to 3x markup in the pre-money valuation when you get to the next round. And so companies are sort of forcing themselves to become hyper-growth businesses or, or, or else. There's not a lot of leeway anymore. And I think the same thing is true for VCs. If you're running a traditional fund, you know, when you're paying up and getting less ownership for a bigger dollar amount, like unless you've gone back and increased the size of your fund, you're actually putting quite a bit of additional pressure on every single investment in your portfolio to generate those returns, right? The, there's only some of the formula that's changing, but not all of it. The good news is that more of the formula is starting to change and things are normalizing. We're starting to see bigger rounds at higher valuations. But more capital being deployed, so the relative ownership for investors is is starting to normalize out. But but all, these things are all related. Think about the founder experience of feeling so stoked that you were able to raise a big round at a high valuation, and for the in, for the investor to feel great that they got into it to invest in a company they're thrilled about. But now both parties are under even more pressure than they already were. And if building startups was hard and being a successful VC was hard, all we're doing is making it harder in this market because of the pricing. So with that, do you think that maybe fund size is going to change in the future? All the funds that they're going to raise have to be larger? Or do you think that expected milestones to be hit between each round might change? How do you think those will change? The the dynamics will change moving forward? All I can do is observe what's happening. Absolutely. So we're, we're seeing early stage, even seed stage investors raise bigger funds so they can write bigger checks so they can maintain their ownership right and if you if you if we take a step back and we think about what's happened in the last you know 5 years with the shift from private equity sort of you know moving into late stage venture and then every single stage of a venture fund kind of moving downstream series a vcs became seed stage vcs seed stage became pre seed pre seed wasn't even a thing that existed a couple of years ago but there's so much capital in the system and because of these shifts what matters is getting capital deployed and maximizing ownership. So if your last fund was a $20 million fund and your new fund is a $50 million fund and you're writing bigger checks, but the same number, you're going to own roughly the same amount, but that's why the, the round sizes and the valuations are ballooning. Now, if we're in this bull market and the exit multiples stay where they are, the system sort of solves for itself and to some extent works. Problem is what happens when the multiples drop back down to conservative or realistic, you know, P, public market PE comps versus private company rounds in this market. And it's sort of like musical chairs. Like if you've got a company that's got a $200 million post and you're doing two, two and a half million a year in revenue and your burn is high, like getting that next round done is going to be super painful, right? You can't be out of the game. And you can't not grow your company aggressively, but no one can really predict if and when the music will stop. Maybe we never have a major correction and this just continues. And this is sort of the new baseline because of the amount of capital in the system or things blow up on us again. I've, I've lived through two cycles. I have you know, been built... I was out fundraising post the financial crisis for, for Filterbox. The dot-com crash swept up a great company that we had you know, spun out of Novell in the, in, during, the, during that era. I just have a long view. For some reason, I want to make a SPAC joke in there, but uh, 
<laughs> we'll save that for the for the follow-up podcast interview. Okay, <laughs> I, I just thought of this right now after you said you've been through two funding cycles. A lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, this is their their first time started in a company, maybe second time, but it's all been in the last 10, 10 years or so. What advice, if and not saying that we believe or not, this isn't one of those financial podcasts, not at all. This is, you know, entrepreneurs. If there was a turn in the cycle, what advice or wisdom could you share from your experience living through two of those? I, this is a total cliche, but it's so true. Must be present to win. If you don't have the runway, the reserves, or the back pocket plan on how to survive a flat market or, or smaller sales or live for you know, 12 to 18 months on the capital you currently have, you're not going to survive one of these downturns. The companies, think about the companies through these downturns that have managed to survive. They ultimately become huge companies because they get leaner, more efficient, they get closer to being profitable, and they come out the other strong, the other side stronger. What when when the buy side of the market goes away because the market's cooling off and the companies that are over their skis on valuation and burn are trying to self-correct, investors go away. They don't want to keep placing super risky bets when the market turns. If you want to play the long game building a great business. The key is must be present to win, which means don't die when the market takes a turn. If you're short on cash and growing super fast and the market's good right now, put some more money on your balance sheet. Find always be looking ahead because we can't really predict what's going to happen. And I know you said that you're not, you know, smart enough to see the future, even though I do think you're a futurist. I do think you have a, this vision of the future. What do you see impacting our lives in the next five years or even 25 years from now? It's a great question. I, I can tell you what, I, what I'm sort of focused on and, inter and interested in. Whether these are the things that are going to impact our lives or not, hard to predict. It, uh, you know, as I said before, but a couple of the areas that I'm super interested in spending time on certainly are Web three, major sea, ch sea change with decentralization. We're in the very early innings there. It's really exciting. It's also very noisy and confusing, which is part of why it's exciting. But I think that the impact that decentralization is going to have on personal sovereignty financial markets and data is going to be really impactful. The other is climate tech and climate change. We're so behind the ball. like We, we were warned, and yet here we are scrambling. But there's some really exciting things that you know, can and will happen. The next 25 years are going to look really different than the last 25 years. And so we're going to see a lot going into this, into this category. And I'm excited to see what's going on there. Another one that I'm focused and interested in is autonomy and AI. I think there's lots of innovation happening in autonomy, which is going to leave humans to do better and higher order work. And it's going to take maximum human brain power to solve the problems we've created for ourselves. So I don't know exactly what the future holds. I just know that we need to work really hard to fix the things we've already screwed up. Smart applications of autonomy and AI are really interesting places. On a personal level, like I'm hoping like for humanity's sake and for the planet's sake that we see a huge shift towards sustainable transportation. Right, renewable energy for transportation, getting rid of the, all the fossil fuels that we burn to move ourselves around, is going to be super important. Because if we don't solve that, like, doesn't matter how many plastic straws I don't use. <laughs> don't forget plastic bags as well. <laughs> Ari, I also have to ask: a normal day for you? How do you spend your time? Is it building companies? Is it advising companies? Is it investing? How do you separate it? And then, if you have any stories of any companies you worked with. Any entrepreneur story that you really enjoyed that comes to mind before wrapping it up, please feel free to share with us. Primarily, I'm focused on building massive. 
which is an investment firm that my partner David Mandel and I have bootstrapped. So we're, we're a venture firm, but we don't have a fund. We essentially bootstrapped, bootstrapped a venture platform and it's growing really quickly. We're real excited about the progress. And so most of my time is, is doing that work. So spending time with companies, with founders, looking at companies. Uh, we're focused on some of the markets I was talking about a few minutes ago and working with uh, our ecosystem there. I also spend time working with super early stage founders in the Rocky Mountain region because I'm a partner at the Fun Rockies. So I get to connect with lots of companies that are in the earliest stages because we invest 50k checks in select companies in the Rocky Mountain region through through that vehicle. And you know, I also continue to mentor at TechStars across multiple programs. And I recently was a mentor for the Stacks Accelerator, which is a, a Web3 platform. Stacks is built on the Bitcoin blockchain. And any other free time I have, <laughs> on top of that, goes to my family and keeping my body healthy. I'm not getting any younger over here. I just turned 48 and uh, need to take care of myself. So, you know, I, I, I get to spend most of my time working with awesome founders building impactful companies. And I feel super, super lucky about that. Ari, before saying any stories, could you talk to us a little bit more about Web 3.0? Because really, that's not, that's not something we've talked about on this show, where you see it. Sure. And I'm sure, I'm sure that you know, sort of the, the founding members of, of Web 3.0 will cringe here, but I'll give you my interpretation of, of what it is, which is sort of the superset of blockchain-centric technologies and applications. So you have layer one of Web 3.0, which are core blockchain technologies like uh, Bitcoin or even the Ethereum protocol itself. And then you get into layer two, which are transport and usage layers, things like wallets. And then on top of that, dApps or distributed trading platforms, distributed asset management, and obviously NFTs. So now people are talking about the metaverse, which is really a ver- the sort of collection of virtual environments that are connected to each other through data. And now that data is going to be owned sovereign- sovereignly by ourselves in distributed ledgers and blockchains versus it being all centralized. So the, the days of Facebook owning you, owning your data, having it in their servers, and creating an environment that you live in according to their rules, like all that's breaking up and being redefined. And so the, the, next, the next generation of the internet, where Web3 is a decentralized, distributed, encrypted, and sovereign evolution of what we already know. But it's, there's a huge sort of shift happening around empowerment back to the individual. It's going to take a long time. We'll have lots of failures. We'll have lots of hype, but it's really exciting because this is a really important evolution sort of for the future of our personal sovereignty, data, financial information, and ability to control the outcomes in our lives. That's fascinating. And then let's wrap it up. If you have a story or or a word of wisdom or anything like that for our audience, this is your time on the mic. You know, rather than any individual stories, I think I would just reflect on my own entrepreneurial experience and, and just want to say that being an entrepreneur and building a business is really, it's, it's really hard. And every single day, your job is to create opportunities for your team to be successful, set a vision and help, help smart people figure things out. But you often feel like you're failing and you often feel like you don't know what you're doing. And no matter how well or poorly things are going, I think entrepreneurs can feel that way. And so my advice is to just remind you as a founder, like you're not in this alone and to build a great support network around you. Hire an executive coach, 
have investors that truly care about you and the company. Don't work with assholes. Life is too short. And make sure that you have a support team because feeling alone and doing it alone and having to think and make decisions alone is terrifying. And when you can feel like you've got thought partners and supporters and people that will challenge you to grow and scale yourself, I think that's where a lot of of greatness comes out of. The difference between a billion-dollar company and a failure is often what goes on in someone's head. Ari, that was amazing advice. I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. I want to thank Jack Keller for the introduction and also for our audience out there. I mean, I know a lot of people are going to listen to this episode multiple times. Please, if you got any benefit from it, go on iTunes or any other hosting platform and give us a great review. Also, I got to give a shameless plug for myself. If you are a company looking to be acquired, to sell, raise growth capital, I am a principal at a mid-market investment bank. Please connect with me. Uh, And for everyone out there, visit us on the Silicon Valley podcast.com. And once again, Ari, thank you for the time day on the Silicon Valley podcast. Sean, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley podcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.